Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Cover Your Tracks. I am your host, Eddie Collins. First and foremost, I just want to say a big thank you to everyone who tuned into last week's episode and gave me some feedback, you know, let me know you were listening and stuff. It's really awesome to know that there's people out there that, you know, are into this kind of thing. And uh, this is a new venture for me. I've never done podcasting before, aside from being a guest on a couple shows. Um, So, you know, the whole recording this and editing and doing everything along with it, it's a a challenge for me, uh, but it's super fun. So if I can keep doing this and, you know, keep bringing content to everyone, you know, it's, it's awesome. It's super rewarding. So thank you so much again for tuning in, and I hope you continue to do so. I hope you enjoy what I'm doing, and I hope that, you know, you just you keep coming back because it, it means a lot to me. Let's get into this week's episode. This is really cool. This is the first artist breakdown on the show, so I'm really excited about this one. I had a really, really good conversation with my friend Scott Aquavella of the band Cryptodira about their 2017 Good Fight music release, The Devil's Despair. we're doing it we're doing it we're doing it hell yeah dude thank you thank you so much for doing this of course man thanks so much for having me it's been a good yeah absolutely it's been a while yeah how you how you been uh you know holding up how's how's no hockey going for you (laughs) no hockey is one of the worst parts about all this man i'm 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 holding up all right though i mean at the end of the day i'm i'm happy i'm healthy i'm i'm chilling i'm drinking an orange seltzer right now so i'm having a decent day but uh, definitely yeah i've been on the seltzer the seltzer kick for a while now it's the move, man. I, I I chain drink seltzers when I'm home. It's crazy. I'll drink like six in a row. It's not. Cool. Oh yeah, no, <laughs> I feel that. I like so on uh, on tour. Our drummer Dan is a huge like huge health guy. Well, I don't know if I'd say health guy, but he's like a gym rat kind of. Right, right, <laughs> I've seen right. that dude eat way too much pizza to call him a health guy. <laughs> but uh, he's like a gym rat. So we would uh, we post up at a. Uh, at Planet Fitnesses instead oh, of like dude. getting like rooms or whatever. That's the move. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We all have black cards, so we go in, do the shower thing, you know, work out, whatever. But Dan like kind of got me going on this this like fitness kick, and uh, I now that like well now that the gyms are closed, it sucks. But like I hated not going to the gym when I got home, oh, so dude, I started yeah. going all the time and like drop from like. 230 i'm down to like 185 now Fuck yeah. and it's mainly like i just changed the diet and did a whole bunch of cardio and uh yeah i got on the seltzer kick stopped drinking like because i would drink iced tea a lot yeah oh and yeah, like just kicking the sugars man just it's awesome seltzer is the move for that it is the perfect perfect soda replacement perfect iced tea replacement perfect sweets replacement i don't understand anyone who doesn't like seltzer but don't even get me started on that <laughs> now nah, dude i 100 percent agree with that Fuck yeah, dude. Yeah, but I'm really uh, really just hoping to get some hockey in my life <laughs> at some dude, point in the future. I've been watching, like, I have NHL Networks. I, I subscribe to that shit. And I've been watching games from, like, 1971 every single day. Because oh, that's man. all they're playing. Like, right now they're having, like, a 50s marathon all day from, like, Stanley oh, Cup that's final. Great. And I'm just straight up watching that stuff and, like, documentaries and, like, just trying to and NHL 20 and just injecting as much 
hockey as I possibly can into my body, and it's just not scratching the itch right, like, exactly uh, the way I need it to. No, I I follow like the Bruins and uh, their broadcast station Nesson, and Nesson's been replaying all of the 2011 Stanley Cup run. Ah, good. So news. like they're just like I would see their post on Instagram, and it's the uh, they're showing like you know the shutout. Uh, the the sweep of the the flyers and stuff and like just like oh my god this this hurts so much <laughs> i miss it yeah, but yeah so what's what's new with you guys what have you guys been up to we just recorded a, a brand new record uh just in time to beat the coronavirus scare which is good we are down in Woo. uh in north carolina uh in january for pretty much the whole month recording a record with jamie king that's very um, very cool man yeah it seemed like a long time coming to to get down there and work with him because we're so often compared to a lot of the bands that he's worked with before and stuff. So mm-hmm. it, it just seemed like a partnership that was waiting to happen. So um, finally made it happen, went down there. It was the coolest recording experience probably ever that we've ever had. That's awesome. Yeah. He's just, he's just a legend, just a super smart guy, super insightful guy. And, and but like above anything else, just so easy to work with. And so cool, man, like just the fucking coolest guy on the planet. So the record came he, out cool. Yeah. He seems like that, like from from some like, you know, the the between the barrier to me stories and like some of the like the recording vlogs and like, you know, whatever. Like he just seems like he would be a really, really intuitive dude. And like, was he like super involved in like uh, like producing or anything or was it mainly just like the engineering aspect? Well, it's funny because in the beginning, we, we, we really wanted that, right? Like we wanted to get his opinion on absolutely everything. And mm-hmm. we were actually shocked in the beginning by how much he let it breathe. And he oh. seems to be the type that gets involved a little bit later in the process. And we were doing drums and everything. And he's just doing more engineering. And then we started to hit the guitars. Then we saw his ideas start to come out. But the cool thing about it is he never seems like he's producing so much. It's just like we're all hanging out. And he comes up with an idea and would just kind of present it or like, or something like that but it never felt like here's what you should do for this part you know he doesn't have that like super famous producer vibe at all like at yeah. all he's just a dude in his house in north carolina like there's nothing around his house it's just like a regular ass neighborhood and that's kind of wow. like a, like a microcosm of his entire personality he's just a really regular dude but then when you're like sitting there trying to figure out a vocal harmony he'll be like oh why don't you do the third why don't you do the sixth and you're like what and then he'll just sing it and you're like how did you come up with that so quickly and then run to the vocal booth and do the harmony and i'm like damn jamie you wrote like 30 percent of the harmonies on this track <laughs> like, you know me and me and matt who do the vocals together like matt, matt, matt writes all the lyrics that are uh, for the band and i do all the <laughs> singing but we'll kind of come up with melodies together and so me and him and Jamie sat down together for the harmony day and just literally banged them out one part at a time. Okay. What should we do for this? And we'd all sit there going like, ha, 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 ha. Oh, okay, no, that's <laughs> the one. And like, he, he was, he beat us to the punch, like at least half the time, you know, he's just wow. a really intuitive, smart guy when it comes to that kind of stuff. And then sonically, obviously is where his, his expertise really lies in mixing and knowing, you know, what frequencies to take in and out and everything. He's just mm-hmm. very smart guy. Very smart. Yeah, absolutely. Guy. His, his albums always sound just, incredible they're huge you know that they're they're tight it doesn't it's not like there's like anything uh you can tell he he definitely lets the band breathe like you were saying and stuff but like it's just so tight and crisp like his his style of you know engineering and on the production and it's just it's one of my favorites for sure yeah and our big thing is that he sounds like well the records he does 
the bands sound like bands playing. Yeah, you know, they're exactly. Not, they're not like this computer, super overly technical, overly tight, overly unrealistic. It sounds like a band playing their music, which is like, mm-hmm. okay, well, that's why we have to go there because that's we're so big on that stuff. We play at a real amp still. Not that there's anything wrong with any of the digital stuff or anything, but we're just a very meat and potatoes old kind of old style kind of band. So we play at amps, so we do everything supernaturally, and we're like, well, we need to go do the natural sounding guy. Then it just makes sense. Yeah, no, for sure. That's awesome, dude. When uh, do you guys have a uh, like a release date plan for that, or is everything going to get pushed back right now? Luckily, we fell in this weird spot where nothing got pushed back yet. We had a tour cancel on us in spring, obviously, but there's nothing yeah. to do about that. That was more just like a warm up tour for the for the record, anyway. Um, but we're looking to release probably around November. Um, okay, and that was kind of the plan all along uh, because of some tour stuff that may or may not be happening around then. So. All, as long as nothing goes completely wrong and we aren't still quarantined in November, we should yeah. be, you know, releasing around then. But the idea is to release it on tour, obviously, and, you know, sell the record while we're out and stuff. So, yeah, no, it, look, look for November, definitely. Uh, it should be fine, but <laughs> it seems like awesome. nothing is certain nowadays. Yeah, I'm excited for it. Thanks, man. Definitely excited. Well, shit, yeah, man, let's, uh, I guess we can hop into uh, Devil's Despair if you're down for it. Yeah, dude, let's let's get get back to the old ones. So I've been so oh, stuck yeah. in new album land that it'll be uh, it'll be <laughs> a little fun to to dive back and see where it started. Cool, man. Yeah. So you guys you guys did the uh, the album with uh, with Randy, right? Randy LaBeouf. Yes, Randy LaBeouf and Steve Side actually the two of them co-produced it together. They both work out of uh, out of Graphic Nature Audio, which is Will Putney's studio up in New Jersey. Yeah. Um, so it was a total co-production, like literally both guys were there a hundred percent of the time. That's awesome. I, I know, I know Randy's credits list is pretty intense. The dude's, uh, the dude's definitely seen some stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Him and him and Steve were, I mean, they, they were dealing with a green band as far as recording in a very professional environment. Like we've been a band for a while, obviously you and I toured together in 2015. And, but at the time yeah. we were sort of just kind of cutting our teeth and touring and all of our recordings essentially were just bedroom demos at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was our first sign release. It was our first full big studio recording record. So there's definitely this factor of intimidation when we were walking into that studio and being like, Okay, like you know, our ass is kind of tightened up a little bit. Like, okay, let's make sure we don't screw this up. Let's make sure we, you know, we know what we're doing. Yeah, and and Steve and Randy just were so 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 amazing. Like Im- immediately, immediately, all that was gone. It was just we're hanging out, we're making a cool record. These guys rock. They love the music that we're putting out. Let's just let's just do this. And they were so so important in in making that record come out the way it did. Like That's so cool. so important. They would come it's, in. It's cool when you can go in and and they really kind of make it way easier, you know, yeah. like way easier than you, th- not as hard as you thought it was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You don't want to fight that. Like I said, that old fashioned producer vibe, like you're going to walk in and this guy's going to bend and break you until, until your music sounds the way that he thinks will, it'll sell. It, it was never about that. And with the type of music that we play, it can never really be about that. Yeah. So they would come in, you know, work 12 hours a day. We get there actually longer than that, really 14, 15 hours a day. They get in around 12, one o'clock and we'd work until one, two o'clock in the morning, at least if not three. And they never had this like studio vibe where it's like, well, I work from 12 to six and I charge you by the hour. I was just like, whatever has to get done to get this record done is what we're going to do today. That's great. That's, yeah. that's cool that they're so open. Yeah. No, those just, guys like, ready like, to do whatever. 
I don't have enough good things to say about them. Honestly, there's, there's, I should say I have too many good things to say about them. I'd be on this podcast for the next four or five hours. Like <laughs> those guys became lifelong friends. We still stay in touch with them daily. It's, it's they're the best. That's awesome. Yeah. Fuck yeah, dude. So yeah, let's dive into it then. Yeah, let's uh, start with the uh, track one here, which is neutralization. So, what's important to to note right off the bat is that um, lyrically, our drummer Matt writes everything. He's dedicated a huge part of his life to studying psychoanalytics, to studying philosophy, to studying critical theory, and that's where the entire concept of the band's lyrical message comes from. So I always like to tell people that off the bat, because Mike and I are the singers, we often get like, oh, what are your lyrics about? Like, which is fine, but I like to make people know that they're not my lyrics. I don't want to take credit for something that I didn't do. (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. Um, I totally get that. So Neutralization was uh, one of the later things written for the record. It was a, uh, it was written to be a sort of intro, which Mm -hmm. like, you know, I've grown averse to the, the normal intro track thing. So maybe to this day or at this point, I maybe, maybe we wouldn't have done it, but uh, I think it is still pretty cool. It's, uh, it's essentially just a clean guitar with a whole bunch of synths and then a, uh, a passage from Theodore Adorno's Negative Dialectics, read by Matt, in a, with a vocoder over its voice, so you don't. Even oh, that was Matt. As yeah, Matt. Oh, yeah, that's very cool. That's yeah. awesome. I, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, most most people don't, which is why I thought it'd be fun to bring up. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and so in that passage, Adorno uh, he critiques the interior middle class educated mentality from the perspective of that same mentality. Somebody belongs to that group, and the overall mm-hmm. arching message essentially in this piece is that metaphysical interests are possible in like this utopian sense but only Mm -hmm. once people's material interests are satisfied so the idea being that we can all live in this world where we worry about the pursuit of knowledge and all these other things but not until people are taken care of first yeah so would you say is that like kind of like a theme of the entire album or would that just be like Okay, cool. Yeah, no, that, I, that that's, I kind of got that it. vibe from it. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's the kind of lyrical density that might look when you look at it like, what does this mean? But then the meaning, minute you hear one theme from it, it all starts to unravel. And you're like, oh, this makes plenty of sense. Like that's what no, this absolutely. whole thing is about, you know. Um, yeah. and, that, and that's why the last line that repeats over and over is, "What is must be changeable if it is not to be at all." So that's to say, what is, which is the world we have right now, must be changeable. If it is to mm-hmm. disappear entirely, if it is to not be our reality anymore. So we have to be able to fix the material interests of people before we move on to this greater metaphysical world. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, it, it starts it's, out it's such nice. a cool way to open the album too. like just having it, you know, as an intro track with the spoken word, it kind of it really does set the tone for the album. Yeah, yeah. obviously, uh, you know, after that in uh, Constituum. T- kicks in yeah. it's just like it's such it's it's not abrupt in the in the sense that it's like holy shit where'd that come from it's like wow like you can you can kind of feel it coming you can feel that intenseness you know of the, of the intro building up to that point and it's like the crescendo of it. it's like whoa yeah here we go <laughs> yeah that's actually that's exactly the vibe you're going for so i'm glad that actually like translated properly because mike had just written the clean guitar line from neutralization and then all that sort of building was done entirely in the studio we're like well how do we how do we get to constituted without it being like just like you said just too abrupt so we had this volume swell and the synth line and the feedback going into it and then we wanted to start out the 
the intro guitar to constitute it by itself to make sure it wasn't just too like slam you in the face. So it's more of this like, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, what's gonna happen? <laughs> and here it yeah. comes, you know. So that song was actually written, constituted was written to be the first song on the record entirely. Mm-hmm. And the neutralization we felt like was a better way to to ease you in instead. Yeah. Man, that the riff in the beginning of Constituted, I still remember that from from when we were touring. Yeah. The first time we did that, we played with you guys and I was just like oh shit like <laughs> these dudes are serious <laughs> yeah it's i remember when mike came to practice with that riff he, he wanted to really trap them riff so bad and and, that, and essentially that's what he did you know it wasn't meant to be difficult it wasn't meant to be complicated the riff isn't four you know whereas mm-hmm. there's so much insanity that goes on later on the record it was like why don't we just start out just balls to the wall let's just go for it and then we can yeah. we, we can weave in and out later <laughs> Oh yeah, no, it, it, it's great because it, it. I think it, it really defines the band, you know, in yeah. a sense too, because it it gives that that grittiness and that aggressiveness. But then the whole thing, like you know, it dives into some of the uh, the more melodic parts and stuff. Like it really gives a really like a good spread of you know what you're gonna get. Yeah, yeah, I would I would say as with a lot of our songs, but particularly with Constituted. It is it is definitely a good way. Someone said, like, what does your band sound like? It's like, well, listen to this whole two-part suite. That's more or less what we sound like. That's going to yeah. cover a lot of the ground. And that song was written um, as one song, by the way, Constituted 1 and 2 is Constitutum and Constituents, the two parts. That was one song. It was never really meant to be broken up. That was going to be that was a, like my next question about it, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we'll just get right into it. Yeah, that, that was song was written as one, and it was like an 11-minute song almost. And we were like... Oh boy! All right, <laughs> you know, not that we're you know averse to that kind of thing, but you know, because we love that kind of music with all these long mm-hmm. songs and stuff. But uh, it was our first record label release, so obviously, you know, record labels are not generally too jazzed on eleven-minute songs. They're not yeah. as easy to sell as four-minute bangers. <laughs> exactly. So that wasn't necessarily the reason why we did it, but it definitely like it crept into our brains. And then when we started to consider the idea of breaking it up, we're like, well, that's actually kind of cool. You know, that, mm-hmm. that affords us the flexibility then if we're playing on a tour to go, let's just play Constituted 1 tonight. You know, we don't have to play the second half. We have a short set. It's 25 minutes. Why do we have to play the whole thing? Yeah. So that gave us a little bit of flexibility, and it also sort of lent itself to the story of, of, of the song, to the arc of the song as well. And it just mm-hmm. there seemed to be that natural point where we ring out into the clean section, and we and we changed it a little bit to accommodate that sort of thing. Um, but it was, a, it was a relatively natural point to do it. So we're like, you know, this would be kind of cool to, to break this up into two pieces. Cool. Yeah. I And I think that where it was broken up into two pieces really kind of made sense. And it, it worked out, you know, obviously in your benefit then. So you can have the two different songs to play live. And yeah, it just uh, consciously, it seemed like a really good idea. Thanks, man. Yeah, we, we like that. I, I was a little like weary about starting out part two literally on beat one with like a little guitar solo thing. I'm like, that kind of feels a little weird. Like it's the middle of it. But for now, for some reason, every time I hear it, I'm just like, yeah, that's, that's what it should have been the whole time. Like, I don't know why I ever thought anything weird about that, you know, um, <laughs> yeah, and that, and, that guitar and, solo that starts out part two, man, like that, that I remember sitting in a room with Randy for like an hour and a half, almost two hours, just like writing that in studio. Cause I knew I wanted a solo and I knew kind of what notes I wanted to use, but I purposely left it to not be written because I wanted to get mm-hmm. his input on it. Because he has an amazing melodic ear, Randy. That's like one of his biggest fortes. He just got an incredible ear for melody. So 
him and I just sat there playing around with different things, singing them out loud. And then eventually just like he looped it and walked out of the room and I just sat there recording a million things until I finally had something I was happy with. Oh, very cool. Yeah, dude, it's 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 great. It's a great little lead, great solo. Like everything about the, like I don't know. I can't I can't say enough good things about this album. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I remember getting my my LP, the the blue and bone yeah. split. Oh my god. It's gorgeous, by the way. Oh, thanks, man. But I just remember like sitting down with it and I'm like, wow, why why isn't this band fucking huge right now? Like <laughs> oh, man. it just blows my mind. Well, we're working on it. <laughs> we'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. back in the in the constituted, it's, it's the the first time that the that theme or that that repeating line of "Don't look down" comes in. Yeah, yeah, and Matt, you see that a lot through the album, right? Absolutely. Yeah, Matt is really, really, really big on on creating lyrical themes, and he he finds a really good way of moving them around because to me that creates a feeling around the record as the record it's not just like well that's a catchy song that's constituted as my favorite song as much Mm -hmm. as i love the devil's despair this record because you start to familiarize with these little bits and then you start to see it on merch and you start all of a sudden it's in your head and you're like creating this sort of like more round image of the whole of the record as a piece because while it wasn't written as one song they were all written generally with each other in mind cool that that's cool i I like that i like that it's we wouldn't say it's like a concept album, would yeah. you? No, I mean, not definitely not musically, um, mm-hmm. because there's no like really recurring musical themes in terms of like melody yeah. or riffs or whatever. Um, but lyrically, it's not. It's not. A, I think when people hear concept record, they think of a story, um, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure that's necessarily true. But to me, they're the lyrics are all very conceptually tied. They're all written a hundred percent with each other in mind. They're all written a hundred percent as a a larger dialogue. It's not just like, well, this song is about love, and this one's about my friend, and this like it's all it's all under the same umbrella conceptually. So in that respect, every single record we ever put out will be a concept record. They're all going to be written with a, a theme in mind for each. Oh, one. I love it. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's great. Very cool, dude. Let's uh. Yeah, let's let's get into I guess Medusa misgendered. So this song was the first single on the record. It was the first like super duper duper professional recording that we ever put out, really, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so I remember kind of pissing my pants putting it out i was like uh, you know we announced we were signed this was the first song that was coming out announced the name of the record like it was all one big knowledge drop so this song is kind of always going to be a little special to me just you know for that nostalgic purpose but um it is one of the more interesting songs lyrically to me and i i, I truly love it i love the concept of it and we get a lot of questions about like that title seems to jump out of people like what does that mean mm-hmm. so the it deals with the concept of reification, which is subjects being turned into objects and being stripped of their humanity, and vice versa as well. Objects being mm-hmm. treated with too much humanity when there's people on the other side of them. So it refers to the myth of Medusa, which as most people know is men staring into Medusa's eyes and they're turned to stone. So they're turned into mm-hmm. actual objects themselves. So this song presents the idea that Medusa in the myth was actually properly misgendered. That Medusa, who's being portrayed as a woman objectifying and reifying men who stare into her gaze it actually refers to an anxiety of of, in vulgar masculinity which is being objectified when it's really not the reality 
So the it's the idea that perhaps Medusa was actually misgendered. Maybe Medusa was actually a man whose reifying gaze is objectifying femininity and trying to own it. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> very, very deep. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 how Matt's brain works a hundred percent of the time. <laughs> I, can, I can tell. <laughs> Just from like following him on a on like social media and stuff, I can tell that he's a a very, very deep intellectual man. <laughs> yeah, he is, but he's also one of the most fun people I've ever known, which is so cool about it. Like, this band has always been equal parts party and serious, and I, I'm really, really super proud to be part of that dynamic because we're not stuffy. You know, I, we, we play with some yeah. bands who are, like, a little bit too, like, up their own asses, you know? And that's definitely <laughs> not how we are, and you know that firsthand. But we also know if it's important to say something. Um, yeah and especially in our type of music where you know and, and i love these kinds of records but so many prog records are about like you know aliens or some kind of other shit and you're like oh that's mm-hmm. super fun and cool but like it's hard to to take that super internally and take that super seriously and really like bond with a record that's about aliens coming to earth you know exactly yeah it's trying to take away something from i mean there's all obviously in like a lot of the sci-fi themed uh records or anything really there's there's a lot to take away from it in your own life but it's hard to translate that into like an everyday sure thing you know i that's what i take from a lot of the sci-fi stuff and i i'm not like the biggest sci-fi fan i can get into a lot of it but like you know there's some there's some really really great messages but what it's it's hard to it's hard to take that into consideration when it's aliens and like weird shit <laughs> yeah <laughs> and, and there's plenty to be drawn from that like you said in in movies and, and music and other kinds of media so it's it's like i said i love a lot of those records it's not to discredit anything it's just like we are so much more focused on getting a very worldly message out there in, in a Absolutely. context that it doesn't usually exist in which is progressive music um That's, i love it thanks man so yeah this this song is super cool it's 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 one of my favorites melodically it was probably one of the more challenging things to sing for me um i was sort of at this time when we were recording the record i was i was still really feeling out my singing voice um Mm -hmm. i'd done lots of screaming before and i was generally pretty comfortable with that but then even now i listen back to those vocals and go like oh geez i could have done better on that you know but (laughs) the singing was way more of like a it wasn't it wasn't new ground at all it was just having been doing having doing it in this like super professional context where now all of a sudden i'm microscoping it and it's now like a feature of the band and less of just something that we do. Um, mm-hmm. So th- this song really challenged me a lot on that. And the singing and playing aspect of it was difficult too. Is the song's mostly in 11-4 and 5-4. So there's a lot mm-hmm. of this like odd meter kind of stuff that's running around it. Um, and the heavy stuff's pretty easy to sing and play. But the clean section, the long melodic middle bit was really hard to learn how to sing and play. Because I was playing a lead the entire time pretty much during the clean section. Yeah. Or at least the first half of it. There's like that background sort of theme and i had to sing melodically while playing a single note high neck sort of lead thing which was really confusing for my brain because it's easier to like scream while playing melodically believe it or not because you're not you don't have these melodies conflicting in your brain you know i was gonna ask how that how that was and how the transition was is there's a being a guitarist and a vocalist also like Playing chords and singing and, you know, whatever random stuff like that comes super easy and naturally to me. But if I have to, like, riff over anything while singing, it just, like, my mind's like, fuck you. Yeah. What are you trying to do? <laughs> it's and then so I, hard. You know, and then there's there's people like you and, like, Muhammad from Necrophages. Like, he's one of, like, my favorite because that shit is so, so technical. But 
it just seems effortless yeah for him to be able to do that so like was going from you know obviously the screaming into the to the the cleaner vocals like was it like a really hard transition for you or was it just kind of natural it was really not even a transition because i was always a singer way before i was a screamer like when i was a kid i, I grew up mm-hmm. on like green day and lincoln park and those are my favorite bands so i have always been like super into like amazing clean melodic vocals so i did mm-hmm. lots of singing when i was a kid and you know learning green day songs and singing in my room and stuff so to me that actually came more naturally the screaming stuff came mm-hmm. later but then that was more what the band was focused on. We always had singing in our music no matter what, but like it didn't matter. It was just like something that I would just do, you know, like we, on our yeah. demos, like, well, this is the singing part. Just do it. And I never really cared about too much about how it sounded. It was just like getting those screams sounding good, you know? So it was less yeah, of a transition, yeah. like in terms of doing singing and screaming as much as like, okay, well now I need to make this a really good performance. This needs, to, I need to be a singer, not just mm-hmm. somebody who sings, if that makes any yeah. sense. Did you have a hard time uh, vocally live transitioning between both of them? It definitely earlier on, um, it was it was more difficult than it is now. And I think a lot of that comes down to just sort of trial and error, right? And like figuring it out and going on tour a lot. And in the beginning, mm-hmm. I'd find myself getting really out of breath or finding myself like next day and wake up, my voice is gone or something like that, you know, just from. Yeah. A, a lot of it too is just like yelling over other bands playing while you're talking to your friends at the show you know mm-hmm. and less of yep. the actual show itself so i'd say over, yeah it definitely was tough in the beginning but i learned as i got older and did more touring just like you know take it easy you know know, know your limits like in terms of like like performing live make sure you have a good monitor mix so you're not pushing yourself too far and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff and um you know drink a whole bunch of water and drink a whole bunch of tea and you know don't be shouting at your friends all night if you can avoid it at least not every night you know tours long <laughs> exactly. you know don't don't blow yourself yep. out the first four days it's it's that kind of stuff so to me it's, it was mostly just experience but it was definitely a little bit of a of a, of a process in the beginning yeah good good yeah Dude, being able to hear yourself on stage is mm-hmm. the oh, is the most important thing in the world <laughs> first and foremost 100% oh yeah we yeah. we switched over to ears oh um, nice a few months back and uh when we first did it our our singer brandon was a little like weird about it at first because like i think he said when he he used ears before he thought it was just super stagnant there was like no life to it or anything and you know it could have just been the mix from what he was using you know initially and when we when we went into rehearsals and we started messing with the ears rack for the first time and stuff he's like oh my god he's like I can use actual technique now. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, it's great, right? Yeah. I've heard that too about people who switch to ears being like, all of a sudden I feel like I'm in an ISO booth and like the mm-hmm. life of the crowd is gone and stuff. So when we toured with uh, Val Maya and Intervals last year, Intervals did the ears obviously, but they did a really cool idea, which is just putting a couple of mics at the front of the stage as room mics and yeah. being able to blend in the crowd noise a little bit. Exactly. And they're like, dude, that's just like night and day. Now all of a sudden yep. you can just feel what's going on again and you're not so in your head about what you're doing yeah so when we were out with steel panther um i can't remember exactly what venue we were at but we weren't we weren't carrying our own crowd mics um if we got to a venue and they had something we could use we would you know obviously prefer to use it but the one venue um the uh the front of house engineer there is like oh yeah he's like I, i've got you know whatever i've got these 187s you can use he's like i'll throw them He's like, wherever you want. He's like, I prefer to take them uh, a little bit upstage 
So instead of having them right at the the end of the stage, right towards the crowd, he's like, you know, if you bring them upstage a little more, you have a little bit of the vibe and the feel from, you know, the band itself, plus you'll still get that crowd noise. Mm. So when we were able to mix that in a little bit, you get you, it, like the the stage sound yeah, along yeah. with the the ambient noise from the crowd and stuff. It was a huge game changer. And I was like, I love that. I think like that's going to be the way we we go about it from now on. Yeah, that's awesome. Because then you get some of the cab sound. I'm sure you guys are still using cabs, right? Not doing like the direct PA thing or whatever. No, yeah. yeah. Um, I I still have a cab on stage. Just I, playing bass, I love that like Dude, the yeah. low resonance and like I have to feel it, Dude, you know, yeah. or else it just it's it. There's no vibe at all. <laughs> I don't I don't understand the. I mean, again, there's so many amazing bands to do it. I, I and to each their own, but. I am the same way. To me, I will, I will never play without a cab on stage. I, yeah, as long as I live, I'll die before I do that. It's too much. Our, our guitarist, Bishop, he's uh, he does a lot of effects stuff. And uh, he, d- he does some crazy delay things where he has like, you know, these warbles that go off and sounds like a UFO. And it's pretty <laughs> wild. It's like his like signature thing. But for a little bit, he was, he was trying to... Uh, like kind of minimalize it and use like a looper in a sense where you can like trigger multiple things. And he's just like, I fucking hate this. <laughs> he's like, I need to step on these pedals. I need to do it. So like I would, I might personally myself, I would love to, you know, run a Kemper or something like that, but still have my cab on stage. Sure. So that way I have like a fly rig and, yeah, yeah. you know, a guitar rig and a bass rig in one, I can just close it all out and not worry about anything. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, I see the arguments for it, man. Like, it is convenience beyond belief, and the shit sounds mm-hmm. really good nowadays, too. So I totally yeah. get it. And and one of the best live sounds I've ever seen is Intervals, and those dudes run, uh, they do run Axe Effects into cabs, and, uh, power amps and cabs, and it sounds phenomenal i am generally an amp guy i'm probably always going to be an amp guy i would love yeah. to have a kemper for my house because that to me like, that's like the coolest thing in the world is to have at home exactly um, but yeah i mean and, and the, the floor profiler that they have now is insane it's yeah just the pedal board that's yeah it's crazy so convenient shit rocks so talk, speaking of gear anyway what what kind of gear were you guys using on this on this record so it was it was pretty pretty meat and potatoes honestly man like it, there was it was a Regular old PV6505 is the dirty tone, and uh, we ran through a Port City cab, which was really cool. Um, they're like a awesome. local North Carolina company mm-hmm. uh, that Jamie's pretty hooked, uh, pretty plugged into, and it was super cool sounding cab. I'm actually considering maybe buying one, but I'm kind of broke right now with this whole coronavirus thing. So, oh man, um, I forget what kind of speakers were in it. Probably some kind of V30 type of thing. Um, there might yeah. have been there may have been some different things in there too, but I don't really remember. As far as amps go, yeah, it was the 6505 one for the uh, for the dirty tone and um, for the cleans, we bounced between a couple of cool things. We had um, a Port City. I forgot mm-hmm. the name of the amp exactly, but that was really cool. I had like this Fendery type of tone. And then mm-hmm. three, the other three guys in my band all work for the amp company Supro. Um, oh. I'm the only one who doesn't actually in the band. So they all work for Supro slash Pictronics, which is the same company. It's under the same umbrella, and that's based on Long Island. There's only one factory where all the amps are actually produced. And they all are there. Mike does testing and everything. Jeremy does like management. Matt builds pedals for Pigtronics. And they're obviously those jobs are all flexible and they do other things too, but that's sort of the main vibe. And uh, so anyway, so Mike and Jeremy brought down a, um, a couple of Supros. We have Saturn and a... Ooh, I'm going to fuck this up. 
he brought down a Saturn at Keeley, but we didn't end up using the Keeley. So I believe we just used a Saturn for about maybe half the cleans, and then okay. the Port City for the other half the cleans, depending on like if we wanted more chimey tone or more round tone. Um, but yeah, it was cool. And then for guitars, um, nothing fancy dancy. We used uh, Mike's Ernie Balls. He has a Ernie Ball Music Man Mariposa that he just bought. That super cool pink one. That uh, gorgeous guitar. Yeah, oh, I see his videos and cool. stuff all the time. I was like, wow. Yeah, that thing rocks. That's the dude from the Mars Voltas guitar, uh, Omar. Um, oh. Yeah, pretty sure anyway. And um, okay. we use the St. Vincent as well. Um, and then for my tones, I and mean, it really really wasn't mine versus his. It was kind of just whatever guitar sounded the best. But for most of my mm-hmm. stuff, I use my PRS CE24, which I just got. It's brand new. And awesome. I use my old trusty custom 24 for a couple of things mm-hmm. as well, too. So. Mike and both I both those work guitars are awesome. Thank you, man. <laughs> yeah, I just I just got the CE, man. That thing is freaking killer. Oh man, I saw the the pictures of all the the roadware on the custom. Oh man, and I was like, <laughs> oh man, dude, that thing so is so sick though. I love like, it. it. It it sucks. It sucks having some kind of you know expensive gear or whatever and touring with it pretty hard and just like seeing it deteriorate but at the same time like seeing that road where it's like i played that thing fucking everywhere yeah like, dude <laughs> that's exactly it though and then that guitar was the one i played with on the entire tour that we did with you guys it was just i've yeah. had that guitar and i've played every single show with it like literally every single one since 20 may of 2014 so oh, i just got the ce in october and uh we haven't even played a show since then we played one but it was like i didn't even have the thing set up for our tuning yet so I haven't uh, even played yeah. a show. The other thing's like still immaculate. And so it's like that first ding always sucks. But then after that, it's like every one of them is cool. <laughs> you know, yeah. like the I love the way that the custom hardest. Yeah. It's like you look at like, oh, no, now the headstock's going to chip it. But like that, that custom man is so beat up, but it is so cool. I brought that thing around the world. It's been to Europe with me twice. It's been all around the country. It's been in Canada. Like it's that thing has just been everywhere with me. It's still my favorite guitar, but the CE is is definitely cool. I'm probably going to main that one for a little bit. It's got a bolt-on neck as opposed to the the glued-on set neck from the Custom. Mm-hmm. So it's got a different bit of a snap sort of to it. And uh, maple neck instead of uh, rosewood? No. Um, say, are there rosewood on the, on the Customs? The, the custom part. is the the fingerboard is rosewood for sure. The yeah. actual neck is mahogany, I believe, and okay. then the CE has a maple neck rosewood fingerboard as well. So cool. it's just a different kind of vibe, and and I I've never had a bolt on guitar, and not never, but I haven't had one in years. So I was like, you know what, let's do this, and it's definitely cool. It has a little bit of a chimier tone. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so that was the main thing. And then Matt uses regular Tama. I want to say I'm not a drummer. Star Classic Birch. I think cool. star classic maple. I don't know. He's going to hate me if he hears this. <laughs> <laughs> I love, I love his setup. I love like the ergonomic yeah. kind of, you know, I I've never seen anyone set a kit like that before. So like when I, when I first saw him playing it, I was like, that's super interesting, but it makes so much sense. Yeah. He, he is the enemy of every sound guy for about six minutes when we get, to- <laughs> but luckily he's got, he's done so much touring now that, he know like they look at it like where do i put your snare mic because everything is just so weird and like a jungle in there but now he has like a spot so now he'll be like i know it looks crazy just put it through here and they're like oh okay yeah that makes sense so no one really hates him anymore but there there was a minute where they were like how the fuck am i gonna mic this thing but yeah for anyone listening it's he plays this sort of open-handed setup that's inspired by danny carey from tool 
So he puts his hi-hat in the middle, which is the main feature of it. So it runs a remote hi-hat cable. So it still steps on it with his left foot, runs like this mm-hmm. sort of, it looks like a bicycle brake, basically, that yeah, the pulls down right? the hi-hat. Yeah, it's exactly. Like a, so yeah. he can still keep it in the middle. And that allows him the opportunity to play open-handed instead of cross-handed, so he can keep a Tom on his left side, um, Tom on his right side, and then Tom in the middle next to the hi-hat, and kind of just creates this, basically forces him to think differently about the kit. And that mm-hmm. makes his drum parts just sound naturally different. So that yeah. that to me is a huge advantage in in just making the band sound different than a lot of other bands. No, no, that it, it makes a lot of sense because you don't have a lot of the uh, the typical like runs, you know, like the the fills down the toms, you know, starting from right. high to low or something like that. It really does change a lot of it, and it's it, it's not the conventional drum fill, you know, by any means, and watching his videos of him breaking down a lot of that stuff. It's like, wow, like getting your mind to work like that. It's gotta be a a pretty big task. I mean, it was almost, it's like if you learn how to do something a certain way, that's the only way, you know? And cause he did it mm-hmm. when he was such a young kid, he probably played traditionally or cross-handed for like, I'm going to guess like maybe, maybe two years, something like that. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong about that, but in that neighborhood. And then he switched this remote setup when he was a kid and we were in high school so at this point, he's been playing so much longer that way than not that way that the first time we yeah. went to Europe, we couldn't really, you know, you know how those things go where you're doing like fly-in rigs and stuff. He mm-hmm. was like, shit, I have to learn our set on a cross-handed kit. And our first Europe tour, he played traditional drum set, actually. Oh, geez. Yeah, that was that was a tough adjustment. We, we practiced for probably like two months or something like that where he played normal. <laughs> and it wow. sounded different. It worked and everything sounded cool. But even to my ears, and I'm not a drummer, I was like, something does sound just generally different. Man, um, second time we did it, he uh... go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just saying the second time we did it, he actually just stuffed his whole like hydraulic thing into a suitcase. He's like, I'm fucking bringing this. I don't care what drums. (laughs) (laughs) Do you guys do you guys store gear over there at all, or do you just kind of fly with everything? No, we've been super lucky. Um, We don't have to store anything over there because we have a lot of friends who live there, and like honestly, just godsends and let us like borrow a lot of gear. We've actually never rented a single thing in Europe. So when we did a tour in the end of 2017 with number 12 looks like you, the other support band was a band called Rolo Tomasi who we became Mm -hmm. like amazing friends with from that tour because it was their first full American tour and they asked us to share a van with them so they can get around. And we were like, yeah, screw it. Like we'll save a whole bunch of money in a van rental. We'll make some new friends and hopefully they don't stink. And (laughs) it's awesome. They were the coolest people that have ever been born. So it became such an amazing friendship that when they, they invite us to go to Europe just a few months after that tour, then to support them on their like album release run. Mm-hmm. So we're like, of course, it'll be our first time. And um, the other support band was another amazing band called Palm Reader, who we made friends with, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so Palm Reader let us share cabs with them. They let us share a band with them. They let us they actually lent us amps too. Um, God, what else do we do? We shared a drum shell all the shells with Rolo Tomasi. So all we flew with were just breakables, just guitars, cables. Um, Matt brought us cymbals and I stuffed, Mike and I stuffed like very small pedal boards into our suitcases. Like we made like pedal train junior versions, of what we usually yeah. use and just kind of brought the essentials. And and then, yeah. And, and same thing the second time we, it was more cab sharing. Palm Reader lent us their cabs and they weren't even on the tour the second time. They just oh, weren't going awesome. to be on tour. They were like, we're not touring right now. So here, take our cabs. So we went there, picked everything up. Uh, the drummer straight from the path is our friend Craig Reynolds. He lent us a whole ass drum set. Oh, <laughs> like man. just, That's yeah, great. except for symbols. Yeah, it was incredible. It, it, 
you know, Craig just had another kit that he doesn't really use, and he's like, and it's an awesome kit. It was using a Devin Townsend record. <laughs> so oh, he's just geez. like, yeah, take this. <laughs> like, oh, sweet. And Matt's like, I think oh, I like this man. more than my kit. <laughs> That's so sick. Dude, yeah. speaking of Rolo, um, I was at a uh, at a show at like a local bar here in, in Pottsville, and uh, this guy walked in, and he was wearing a Rolo Tomasi shirt, and I was like, oh, no shit. I'm like, my, my friend's just toured with those guys and he's like oh what band I was like oh this band Crypto Deer and he's like oh yeah dude they're awesome and I was like what like, <laughs> that's so like sick. this is so sick dude like, I love that yeah like being in the most random places and you know finding other like-minded people that you know are into the same stuff or you know into the same music it's kind of it's kind of a like a mind fuck in a sense but it, <laughs> but it's great <laughs> very man. cool and and we've yeah. sort of gained this association with them because we've toured with them three times now twice over in europe and once in the states so like it's starting to become like like while they're so much of a bigger band than us and they've had so many more records than us we're starting to like wheeze our way into an association with them where people are like who've seen them in the last couple of years it's it's highly possible that we played too <laughs> oh man I love it. That it's best way to to extend your fan base too. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah for sure. Like constantly playing with uh, you know, the same bands or you know, you know, doing multiple tours with these bands. Like it's a it's a really good way to grow. Yeah. Awesome, dude. Let's uh. So we got well, <laughs> derailed ourselves and <laughs> Medusa. Let's get into uh, the gods of Epicurus. Yeah, so uh, we'll try to keep this one shorter so we're not here all day for you. I don't want to make a good. podcast five hours. Uh, not that I care. I'm, I'm doing nothing today. Um, yeah, I have work at four, but who cares about that? <laughs> um, yeah, Gods, Gods of Epicurus is a, is a really cool song. It's it's one of the ones that has stayed in our live set for pretty much since it's come out. There's only been a couple of shows probably where we didn't play it. Um, this was Mike's Brainchild. It is a wonky insano song starts out with another classic mike monaco super heavy riff it's not like constituted but it's the same sort of mindset of just a mm-hmm. concrete riff to start a song um kind of goes through a lot of ebbs and flows with this like pseudo jazz feel right after the heavy riff and then it it truly it derails into some of the more insane riffs that are on this record it's just mm-hmm. really it's just wonky it is it is a oh, yeah is a Mike Monaco creation. Like if you listen to this song, this is the best way to describe his writing style. Oh man. It's, it's, it's so heavy. Like even, <laughs> even the more melodic parts of it are just like, they still make me want to move, you know, it's like, it's got that, it's got such a draw to it. Yeah. That's but the, the riffs are insane. That's that's Mike. He's he's pure feeling. He, you know, he doesn't write with any theory. He has, you know, a little bit of theory training from like high school and stuff, but like it's very mm-hmm. limited and that's almost by choice at this point. It's mm-hmm. just how he writes. He's 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 entirely feeling based. Matt is much more cerebral, not necessarily theory based. Matt either kind of, mm-hmm. but it's way more like he'll he'll purposely write a time weave where it's like I'm Scott's gonna play in five, Mike's gonna play in six, and they're gonna meet up on thirty. Like that's something that Matt will do on purpose. Whereas Michael just, oh, all right, well, this part vibes, you know, like this, yeah. it feels cool. So I'm going to do this. And that's, you can always tell like a mic riff because of that. And this song is literally 100% mic riffs. Um, at least like <laughs> the main guitar parts and stuff. I wrote like my own uh, second guitar parts and stuff, but the main parts are all entirely Mike's riffs and they're just, they're pure feeling, man. Um, it's awesome. Yeah, they, they really are. You can tell. 
Yeah, definitely. And just like on a lyrical perspective, the song is about commodity fetishism. It's not going to go crazy into it, but it's mm-hmm. it's the only song that uses the first person perspective on the entire record. And the irony is that it is an object who is the who is the person or the not person who's narrating it. Oh, geez. Oh. That's yeah, cool. I I didn't realize that. I, so like I have I have my LP and I I took the insert out and stuff and I you know I've been going through the lyrics and stuff and I, I for some whatever reason I didn't really like point like point out that it was the only song in first person. Yeah, it's it's it doesn't jump out at you, but it is the only one that uses I and me yeah. at least in that context of somebody speaking. Yeah, that's um, it's pretty awesome. And it is the and object. That's a, that's a hard kind of thing to do. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's try to write a song not from from first person. Yeah, and and very little of our stuff is actually now that I think about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, it's very just, cool. That, yeah. yeah. Do you you want to jump into uh, longing belonging? Yeah, sure. So this this song was the most experimental thing that we had done um, to date. We we sort of realized in writing the Devil's Despair that it was very dense, um, mm-hmm. and it maybe needed a minute to breathe. Um, and the band is super heavily influenced by it, like prog rock and stuff like Stephen Wilson and Porcupine Tree and, and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. And that was sort of the inspiration for the song originally. And it ended up turning out to not sound like that so much, but that was definitely like what sparked the idea. Like it was, we thought about having like piano in it and stuff and then ended up not really coming out that way. Um, mm-hmm. I, I still like the song quite a bit. Mike's a little sour on it, just in the interest of transparency. I think it's fun to tell everybody that, but <laughs> I think it's, I think it's a pretty cool song. He's just like, nah, it didn't turn out the way I wanted it to, but we got a lot of shit for this song, honestly, like in, in reviews and stuff, not like people like, Oh, this sucks, but just like a lot of like, Oh, this breaks up the feel of the record. Oh, it was, it was like a moving train. And then, and you know, you get slammed for it. And uh, to me, that's, that's kind of why I like about it. I, I like that it yeah. forced you to take a breath, you know? Yeah, exactly. Because if you're getting if you're getting pounded with with too much throughout an entire album, it kind of it you know it takes its toll on the listener a little bit. So to give it a little room to breathe and give that person like some time to like decompress, you know, before yeah. getting back into it, I think it's that you know right in the middle of the album, perfect point to do that. Yeah, to me, it's it's like it, it clearly marks the first and second halves of the record. Like it, yeah. you, it almost like t- to me when I hear it, it's like you take this big breath in, okay, let it out, and now we're gonna get back into what we were just doing. Um, yeah, I I do agree with Mike that it, it could have been executed a little better. There's definitely some things I would have changed about it. Um, but you know, all in all, it was our first experiment with doing what's essentially a completely clean song. It gets like heavy-ish at the end, um, but mm-hmm. more just like distorted than heavy. Um, that was the hardest song for me to record on vocals though, for sure. It, it was a wake up, not a wake up call, but it was like, man, singing really is hard when it's this delicate mm-hmm. and when it's not like singing loudly over drums or singing loudly over guitars. This is the first time where I'm completely exposed. So like the self-consciousness creeped in a lot. And I sat there with Randy and Steve for like hours, just hammering away at this song at the point where it was almost like, why don't we come back to this tomorrow? But I was like, no, I'm going to hit this today. And mm-hmm. it was one of those things where they're like, dude, you have like seven takes that are pretty good. And I'm like, I don't mm-hmm. want seven takes. They're pretty good. I want one that's really good, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so and so I plugged away there for a very long time and and tried my absolute best to to really like make the exposed version of my voice the best it could be. And finally, I was I was pretty happy with it, but mm-hmm. it did take a long time and it made me kind of reevaluate my approach to singing. Yeah. So when you were recording this song in particular is 
you are you going full bore with your voice or are you kind of holding back a little more and is it like kind of getting the control from not projecting is that like the hard part of it to me yeah it's it's part by part but for this for this song yeah that was that was the hard part man like you're so used to hearing yourself just go for it and you can like hit it with all the power you got to hit it with and hit it confidently um but to hit a note with such a soft attack where mm-hmm. you come in with a word and you're almost breathing the word first to yeah. get the pitch to land where you want it to land is always harder as a result yeah um, that's exactly where i'm at with a lot of trying to just sing in a not you know trying to take take it from like you know 100 percent intensity down to like a 60 or something you lose mm-hmm. so much control at least you know personally i do <laughs> just no like, yeah no I do. It's everyone a does really difficult thing to do and man the takes that you guys got for that are fucking fantastic <laughs> thanks dude yeah it, it was yeah, hard I, to like what we wanted to do is like you know instead of being at a hundred, bring it down to something like forty or fifty. But I didn't even want mm-hmm. to just stay at forty or fifty the whole time. I wanted to sort of like weave between thirty-five and fifty. You know, kind of have these small mm-hmm. peaks and these small valleys. But trying to control it without it being like a super peak or a super valley is like super hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. So I learned a lot, and that that informed a lot of the singing on the new record in terms of like how I approached it. And I'm so much mm-hmm. happier with the new record singing. But I had to go through this essentially to to sort of figure it out and go like, okay, well, this is this is, I have to sing this. And I, we actually performed the song live a few times. It, it comes across as a song that's like purely an album song and like one of those ones that you would never see a band actually play. But we have mm-hmm. done it pro- like not a lot. I'd say probably 10 11 times we've performed this song and it's it's hard man it's it's like one that i really have to focus on especially in a live setting where you don't mm-hmm. have the benefit of super great sound and we don't have in-ears and i'm like sweating my ass off because we just played maybe 15 20 minutes of super heavy stuff and now <laughs> it's like okay now just dial it back like you're sitting in front of a fire in a chair with a cup of coffee you know like it's yeah it's hard it's to dial into that yeah. yeah it's hard to have those two different modes you know yeah. during a during a live show <laughs> for sure without so this, completely killing vibes yeah it, it's a tough balance to strike and so this song to me is just the embodiment of experimentation and learning this is the best mm-hmm. way to play yeah it. it's it's very cool and i think it's kind of like vocally so it's, it's a shining moment for you on the album too it really really awesome. shows what you could do and you know it, there's a lot of different layers to scott obviously <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it really it really shows Thanks, man. That, that was the goal. Was seeing seeing what we could do with this thing. Fuck yeah, dude. Absolutely. You guys crushed it on that. <laughs> Let's move to uh, in hell as in hell as on earth. Why is that so hard to say for me? <laughs> because it's a really hard phrase to say. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It definitely it's, is. It's it's classic Matt again. Um, yeah, th- this song, you know, when all is said and done, a million years from now, when this band is over, I'll I'll always probably associate this record with this song. Um, mm-hmm. It was the only song that got a music video. It was uh, a second single from the record. It was the most popular song from the record. It's the song we close pretty much every show with. Um, cool. Once in a while, we'll switch it up with Negation Consumes Itself, but it's mostly in Hell Eyes on Earth. Um, mm-hmm. And this song almost didn't make the album, which is really the irony of it, which is the fun part about everything that preceded what I just said. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, the original version like of a, it was like a, a little band? bit different. Oh, okay. It was yeah, it like a, like a it, band decision that I almost didn't make it or? 
sort of it's like you know when you go into the studio with a whole bunch of songs right and like there's always the ones that you know like these are the record songs and like there's those ones that are sort of on the fringe if if you have the benefit mm-hmm. of having extra music there's always like that one or two where you're like maybe we don't we'll see about that one you know yeah um and this song was always one of those um it, mm-hmm. the original version of it was a little bit different which is also a big part of it with people are like you're crazy how could that not make it i'm like well if you're the original like you might see what we were saying Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of parts changed and that was the cool thing about having Randy and Steve on board is they never forced anything on us ever but they were, the first two days that we were in the studio we didn't touch an instrument we sat mm-hmm. down listened to all the songs pre-pro and literally because we had sessions of the of the, the songs it wasn't just like we had actual like logic sessions from the pre-pro we would mm-hmm. cut and paste things and delete things and what if we did this riff once and what if we wrote a new part here and what if so yeah. those dudes actually helped us so much because when we were going in we were so burnt out on it. We spent so much time trying to figure out what can we do to make this record better. And we had heard this song so many fucking times. It was like, that's it. These, are the, this is the final song. This is what they are. Like, it's gonna be what it's gonna be. I can't think of anything else to change. Then we get a totally fresh set of ears on it. And Steve and Randy, who had never heard the music, and they would suggest something. We're like, how the fuck do we not think of that? That's so obvious. <laughs> like, you know. That's but you cool. know better so than really- anybody when you live inside the song, you can never be fully objective with it. Yeah. So it took you guys having to like deconstruct it to yep. eventually make it what it is. That's that's pretty cool though. Yeah, absolutely. That 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 song definitely got treatment. A bunch of riffs were taken out of it. It's probably like a minute and a half shorter than it was when it was originally written. Um, a couple parts were added to it. it mm-hmm. You know, they were short, and it just came out to be one of my favorite songs on the record now. But when we and then when we showed like the album to our manager and stuff. He was like, that's, that's probably your single right there. That's the one we're like, Jesus wow. Christ, this song. Almost didn't even make <laughs> Who would have thought dude? Yeah. there's that, that, that point, it's probably about a minute into the song where it, it kind of dies down a little bit. And then it has that little, that little lead riff and then it just kicks in. And it's like that. I'm not sure what kind of effect you were using. You guys are using on the guitar for the yeah. that part. It's like that warbly kind of. It's a vibrato, oh, basically, man. just going super yeah. fast. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, dude. Absolutely. That's like it's one of my favorite songs on the album. But that like that riff in general, that like the you know the music going on behind it with that lead on it is just like oh god yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. I, I I do love that part too. It's it's just the embodiment of chaos and it kind of goes into it pretty cool too. Like the way you said that creepy sort of like lead thing over the clean and then it mm-hmm. just kind of hits you in the face. So oh, that's yeah. probably my it's, favorite part of the song too. Uh, same, yeah, it's just, <laughs> it's so much, but it's, it's so good for what it is. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack in, in this song too. Like, uh, because it, this is a Matt song. So now like Mike's for pure vibe. This one's got a lot to unpack the riff yeah. right after that, after that Dillinger bit where mm-hmm. it's like sort of guitar stance, like dent, so matt actually wrote a descending time signature for that part so every one of those stabs is the first beat of a of a one beat shorter message uh measure than the one that precedes it so it's really six five four three two one eight or that's so cool eight being the the six eight uh five eight four eight three eight two eight one eight essentially oh wow so if you count quickly it'd be one two three four five six one two three four five one two three four one two three one two one one two three four five six and it just descends <laughs> and that's where all those stabs land it's not random as it sounds yeah oh man that's that's so cool like you know listening to some stuff like i'm i'm not a 
I'm more of a feel player myself. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I've had theory classes before, but like, you know, listening to proggier stuff, you can always, it's, it's fun to try to dive in and find out what's going on. And then like a lot of that stuff, like, especially like, you know, Dillinger-esque style, like spastic, it's like trying to figure out what they were thinking without like trying to look it up. Yeah, <laughs> to see what signatures like things are in, so it's cool to hear like the stories behind some of these. Yeah, and, and you know some of it, some of it's just straight up random. Like it just felt cool to alternate three and five, or you know mm-hmm. seven and eight, or whatever. But then sometimes it's completely a hundred percent decided. Like this is what yeah. we're doing. And he just had the idea, and he's like, "How cool would that be to like try to do like descending times?" And then just all he did was put one chord on the first beat of every measure, and it sounds like this like oh how do you feel it's so weird and random but it's like it's really it's entirely mathematical um Mm -hmm. and what i like about it is that it doesn't feel that way so what what i mean by that is you can still bob your head when the drums come in with the with the symbol like on the right hand and everything and you can sort Mm -hmm. of get into it and feel the vibe of it despite it being this like thing and that's a goal that we've always had is that don't do things randomly for the sake of making them random they should always still be musical yeah um so that's 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 a big thing for that one it's like make sure this actually doesn't just sound like stupid so it actually sounds yeah. kind of like a thing that's awesome that's cool that you guys make a conscious effort to not just be weird yeah <laughs> like, exactly be it, weird for the sake of the music but not just for being weird yeah be meaningfully weird you know exactly there's also a dog on this record too on this song uh randy's dog <laughs> did really yeah randy's dog did background vocals on the section after that where there's like a it's like guitar stabs and then like feedback screeching between the guitar stabs mm-hmm. and there's vocals on those guitar stabs his his dog was like having like was just having lots of fun and like playing around with his toy and making growling noises and stuff so he literally lowered the mic in front of her and she was like <laughs> and then we just took that and like slowed it down and put some reverb on it and like pitch shifted a little bit oh man and she's like the background vocals on like i don't even know which words if it's all of them or just one of them i don't even remember at this point but she's actually <laughs> credited on the record as additional oh, vocals God. by by the dog her name is eq which is oh funny. that's perfect yeah wow shout oh, out man. eq she's the best oh that's funny yeah i just saw that in the liner notes <laughs> yeah Yep, EQ the dog. She's there, man. Yep, EQ the dog. That's great. Hell yeah. Cool, man. Let's move on to uh, Fascist Fantasy. Yeah, so this is another fringe song. This one also almost didn't make it. Um, But we cut so much back fat out of every single song when we got there Mm -hmm. that the record got shorter. And we were able okay. to include it. We thought we were going to have to decide between Fascist Fantasy or In Hell. Um, and then every other song got shorter. So the whole record mm-hmm. stayed around like 47 minutes or whatever. And we were like, well, mm-hmm. then we could just put them both on there. Um, Fascist is, is, it's a very, it's the least, it's a song you have to unpack the least lyrically. It is just an outright criticism of, of fascist ideals. It's very simple. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you read the stuff under that lens, it's very okay, this is what they're talking about. Um, yeah. This was the the last song that was written for the record, too. It was probably only done like a couple months before we went in. And um, probably the song I had the most difficulty writing guitar parts for, parts for, mostly the beginning, like the first riff, because Mike wrote that sort of like higher-arching lead thing that's like this harmonic mm-hmm. minor kind of feeling. 
um and it's all based on this feeling this like latin based feel of like dotted eighth note dotted eighth note eighth note so dot 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 and i kind of that's sort of like the overarching theme throughout the song but it's one that fell by the wayside a little bit in terms of like playing live because we do so many support tours and stuff like that we don't get long sets and i like the song a lot it's just not going to ever beat like in hell as an earth and reduce misgendered or constituted or negation consumes itself. So these songs are always going to take priority over it. So because mm-hmm. of that, it's sort of become one of those tracks on a record that you're like, Oh man, I really like that song, but I never get to see the band play it. That's basically this song. <laughs> man. Yeah. That's, I, there's a lot of those songs with, with bands that I love. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. hey, why are you guys playing that song live? <laughs> like, cause you're the only one who likes too. it. <laughs> yeah. We get a lot of that with Crowbot too. Where it's like, why do you guys play this song? It's like, well, because you're like one of the 10 people that probably love that song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I got, I like it. Mike's not too fond of it. Matt and Jeremy think it's pretty cool, but it's just like, it's, it's never going to be better than another song that we could have. played. It might be the kind of thing that like, it, whatever, maybe three, four records from now, we randomly decide to pull an old one. It, it could happen. <laughs> probably not. But yeah. so if you've seen this song, you know, Maybe that was the last time you'll ever see it. <laughs> yeah, we'll just see it. And, you know, maybe in uh, maybe in seven years when you guys do a Devil's Despair 10-year anniversary. <laughs> Dude. <laughs> through it in full. Oh, my God. I can't even imagine. I, ugh, <laughs> My brain. <laughs> I'm actually tabbing out this record right now. Um, oh, really? Yeah, because we're starting to play all these new LP2 songs, like in rehearsals and stuff like that. And I started to notice that, like, when we were doing older songs that like all of a sudden my brain would have to think for an extra second, like, wait, how's that riff go? And I'm like, Oh no, this is happening already. We're already forgetting how to play these songs. So, and they're not just like punk rock songs where you put it on and go, Oh yeah, that's how you play it. Okay. Like I was actually legitimately afraid of like forgetting how to play something and then not being able to get it back. (laughs) So I'm currently, I just got the stems from Steven Randy and I'm like, all the guitar parts I know. And and Mike knows all his parts too, because it's not that far Mm -hmm. off yet. But the bass player who recorded this record is actually not the same bass player we have now. You knew Shane. Shane was on the yeah, Shane. Media. Yeah, and great guy. He's actually Matt's cousin, so he's he's still a homie. He just you know yeah. was moving on to bigger and better things in his life and um, cool. got like, a big boy job and stuff like that. So he you know he had to leave, but um, because of that and because a lot of his parts changed in the studio on the spot because there was another learning curve was not overplaying on this record and a lot of the stuff being dialed back a little bit. That mm-hmm. there was no amazing record of this of this like recording, like uh, of the tabs of this recording. So mm-hmm. Shane did it, the best of his ability to tab it out when he left the band. And I, ju- I've just been going through them the last week and fixing kind of things that were wrong about them. And I'm listening to mm-hmm. isolated bass stems for a week and I'm like ready to lose my fucking mind, oh, but man. I'm almost done. I'm almost done. And then because of that effort that's been even put into it, I thought it was just going to be for us. And I was like, why don't we just sell this as a digital tab book? See if anybody wants it. Like I'm making, yeah, guitar I was just going to say, you know, why the hell yeah. not? So, uh, yeah, it's going to be whenever I finish this, it's going to be on sale for PDF and guitar profiles. Oh, that's awesome. I've, I've seen a lot of people actually doing that lately. Yeah. You know, I guess with the, the whole quarantine thing going on, people would exactly. Thinking, hey, I would have never had the well. time otherwise. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Why not? That's cool, though. That's very cool. So you're saying about like, you know, trying not to to overplay and stuff. Do you guys do you guys think about that? consciously when you're in the writing process too to like trying not to overplay certain things or is it just kind of whatever yeah a little bit now um you know when we did devil's despair we didn't think about it a whole lot mm-hmm. um but we also didn't know a whole lot about recording music so what can seem like a good idea in theory or on midi on guitar pro where everything is equal then you put it into a mix and there's all these different frequencies going on suddenly okay now there's too much going on and and 
it's a balance of strike because we love music that has too much going on. We truly do. Yeah. Like we grew up on prog metal and stuff, but there is a very, very fine line where if you do it too often or if it's too much in one part, it can actually have this reverse effect where now no one's paying attention to any part of it because it's just, just too much going on. Yeah. Um, and we had this it can be a pro- bit of an overload. Yeah, exactly. And we had this issue where, you know, guitars would be doing one melody and then Shane would write his own like counter bass melody. And then Matt would also want to put singing vocals on it. And Randy would be like, guys, there's three melodies happening here and they're all good ones, but no one's going to know any of them <laughs> because yeah. they're going to be fighting for mix space. So, um, <laughs> so now that, now that we had that experience under our belt, we were doing the second record. Um, there was definitely a couple moments where we had this sort of itch to overplay, I think would be the mm-hmm. best way to put it. And maybe we were able to just go, just let it be the riff. Like, and that's not to say it's any simpler. This record is probably more difficult to play um, and more complicated in some ways, but it feels less busy at the same time as, as it is more complicated, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, that's very cool. Awesome. Well, shit. You want to go into uh, Negation con- Consumes Affirmation? Yeah, so this one and and Negation Consumed Itself were written, again, as one piece, uh, similar mm-hmm. to Constituted. Um, the difference being we knew that this one was going to be cut where it was, mm-hmm. but it was still written as one piece in mine. And this this is my favorite. I call it one song, but it's really technically two. But this is my favorite piece of music on the record, bar none. It's my favorite uh, Cryptodira song that's released right now. I think the new stuff mm-hmm. is better, obviously, but every guy in a band will always tell you that. Um, yeah. But <laughs> this, is, this is my favorite song that we have out. It's just... It, it hits in this weird emotional way that mm-hmm. uh, some of the other songs, I, want, I don't want to say don't, but this one has its own unique emotional feel where it's very melancholy and very heavy emotionally and also very heavy on the musical side too. Um, and it also features one of our best friends on it, um, the guest singer right in the beginning. Yeah, yeah, um, uh, Samantha. Uh, yeah. How you, how you pronounce her last name? Is it Raya? Or Raya. Raya, yeah. Raya? Yeah. So our, our good friend Sam Raya is on it and we've known her forever, like since high school, we didn't go to the same high school, but just sort of like friends from the same area. And, um, we years ago had a, had a song on like one of our demos that was like a regular cryptid ear song, but we actually, because it was very melodically based, despite being heavy, we were able to make a sort of acoustic version of it, believe it or not, like this, like reimagined version of the song that drew from its melodies and rewritten. And we had featured her on that. And she's, she's in an awesome band. It's called Nectar, which is like, They they just had this super cool like rock and sort of pop rock vibe to it, mm-hmm. um, but she's just such an amazing singer. And we're like, well, even though it's not in her normal wheelhouse, let's just bring her in on this and and see how our voices match up. And we had such an amazing time writing this acoustic bit together with her that we were like, we got to do this again. So when it came time to go do the the real record, we knew that we wanted her to be on something. Um, mm-hmm you know just because she was so good at what she was doing and it was also just a great friendship too it's not just like we need like a really great like female vocalist or something or we need a woman on this record it was just like she's it's it's it is a friendship aspect to it that that she's now grown with us you know yeah um, it's cool that's very cool yeah um, she's absolutely great vocalist too the the whole song well uh negation consumes affirmation the first part of it it's it's so beautiful. Like it really is. There's not that heavy, the heaviness to it, but it still keeps that melodic side. And it's, it's a gorgeous song. Yeah. Thanks man. And this, this is Matt's uh, baby, this song. So he wrote 
pretty. I mean, he wrote the whole song, and obviously we changed riffs in and out and everything. But this is this is his <laughs> his being like melodically, and um. So when, when we were writing the record out, we're like, that's the spot. It's a long, clean passage. It's an intro. It'll fully spotlight her her voice entirely. So mm-hmm. let's go. Like this is the spot, and uh, she came in on and absolutely crushed it. Like just oh, yeah. just nailed it. And we were like, oh my god, this is. This is going to be the song that makes people like, okay, this is not just like a metal band. This is a band that's doing something a little bit different. Um, So, yeah. So, and then the second part of it in Consumes Itself, um, she comes back again. That was done entirely sort of impromptu in the studio. She was only supposed Mm -hmm. to be on Affirmation in the beginning. And I forget whose idea it was, but it just came up like, well, why don't we have her do like a counter melody harmonizing with Scott in this middle part? And I was like, oh, my God, yeah, let's fucking do that. And wrote it on the spot. And that became my favorite part of it, actually, was like the huh. just being able to sing together with her. And the, the parts just lock in so damn well. And when I yeah. got the stems recently, I dropped the vocals into Reaper and just like raised them up and like heard them like acapella for the first time. And the two parts together there literally sound so fucking cool. Like I'm so huh. happy with that part still. That's got to be so cool to go back and hear those stems again. You know, what, did yeah. you guys record this in 2016? Or, I know yeah. it was released in 2017. Yeah, uh, October, September and October of 2016. It took almost a year to come out because we were getting signed at the time. So there's all kinds of shit. But yeah, it, it was amazing to go back on it and be like, it's just a snapshot in time more than anything. Yeah, to go back four years later and hear some of that stuff. Just hear the isolated tracks. Is That's a very cool, very cool thing to do. Yeah, and this this is my favorite song to do it for. This is also the hardest song on the record to play, for sure, um, especially <laughs> singing and playing. There's a couple of middle sections where it gets really chaotic, where it is a complete fucking nightmare to sing and play. Like, I, I like actually get anxiety when the parts are coming up. Like, it's, oh, that, wow. it's that bad where you're like, oh, no, here's that insane middle part. But obviously that started <laughs> to go away. But, yeah, it's it's just that's what I like about it. The song is, is the most laborious but it's got the most uh reward to it for me on the other side yeah i was gonna say the payoff's got to be pretty big yeah it it was a song that was difficult to record difficult to perform um you know difficult probably for matt to write if i had to guess um Mm -hmm. and and the lyrical content is super cool too it's it's almost like a an offering of hope at the end of the record where it takes digs at the sort of more stringent psychoanalytic uh psychoanalytic idea that the base of human activity is purely primitive it's pure, uh, purely sexuality it's you know it refers to eros who's the the god of i believe sexuality and oh don't say greek is it greek mm-hmm. um but it it, it basically is, is as if to say there's more to us than that um it th- this psychoanalytic idea that humans are purely sexual beings and that's like the be all end all it leaves out the cultural and metaphysical ideas of self-improvement desire for knowledge uh, being in for each other and not just being in for yourself and it basically sells us too short. Um, yeah. And, and that's, this is Matt's undertaking of that idea and, and saying there's, there's still too much for us to fix to write yeah. it off and just say like, well, this is the way we are, you know, like yeah. oh, people We're not always just here to reproduce way. and yeah. You know, and kill each other. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, we're not there. There is something that separates us. Um, yeah. And so this, this is his offering as if to say like, you know, the, I, 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 I disagree with that. And here's why. So it, the the lyrics may read a little bit differently with that in mind. Yeah, that's awesome. It's it's such a cool thing. Like, so just being able to talk to the artist about the album instead of like you know just taking an album and picking it apart for what you know you interpret it as is a really really awesome thing. So like knowing 
you know, what you've said about these songs and going back and listening to them again, you know, reading along or anything like that. It's like, it's such a cool thing to be like, oh yeah, this makes so much more sense now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's, there's something to be said for adding an extra depth to it. I mean, we always like to let people or afford people the ability to, to pick things apart themselves and understand it on their own level first and get something out of it. But if there's any way that we can provide an insight, it's not meant to be a secret with this band. It's not, Mm -hmm. you know, poetry about Matt's life or my life or Mike's life or Jeremy's life. It's, it's meant it's written for people about people. So while there, I do prefer that people do get something out of it on their own. I, we are a hundred percent, always into the idea of chatting about the message because it is exactly that it's a message it's not meant to be a closed book nice yeah that's good to have that transparency too with the fans to just be like you know we'll let you know anything you want <laughs> just yeah. just ask yeah seriously yeah no it's that's exactly the best way to put it and and matt gets a ton of quite well i actually i get a ton of questions about the lyrics and then i refer them to matt because i'm like no it's not me it's not me it's not me <laughs> I promise. i'm not the smart guy it's him oh um, man yeah, That's no, awesome. it's, it's cool. It's always something we're down to do. Hell yeah, dude. Well, fuck, dude. Thank you so much for doing this again. Thanks like, for having me. I don't want to take up too the... much more of your time or anything. That's but, cool. uh, yeah, dude, this is this is awesome. I'm I'm glad this like when I was throwing around the idea of doing a podcast, like I've been thinking about it for a long time and I'm like, you know, what the hell am I gonna do? Like, what should I do? Mm. And uh one day I was just like, you know, thinking like, oh, maybe I'll just do some videos or like I'll pull out albums from my collection and, you know, we'll talk about them or whatever. And then I'm like, you know, maybe I'll do a podcast and we'll talk about albums. And then I'm like, just break them down. Like, you know, because I haven't I haven't really listened to anything that's like a complete breakdown track by track of things. So I was like, this would be awesome. And then going through my vinyl collection, I was like, oh, Scott, that makes <laughs> so much sense. Like, I'll hit him up. Like, this would be such a fun album to do. And it proved right. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, dude! It's a great idea. I, I'm I'm such a nerd. I'm like I, I I'm such a music history nerd that I love. If someone if someone else was doing this podcast, I'd be listening to it. So like I I not like you. I mean like if it wasn't me. Um, yeah. <laughs> like I I would love to hear track by track breakdowns of records that I love and find out little tidbits and little Easter eggs and little things I didn't know like that. I can sit on Wikipedia, dude till five o'clock in the morning reading about a band that i love just because oh, yeah. of that so this to me is an awesome idea and i will be listening okay. to them going forward oh very cool well hopefully it it progresses to a point where i can i can hit some of these you know bigger artists that i yeah. that i've loved and want to talk to and you know just people that i've toured with and you know i i have a lot of a lot of people in mind that i, I want to reach out to and see what we can make happen and especially during this time with you know a lot of bands aren't touring nobody's really doing anything i i'm thinking it might work in my favor a little <laughs> which oh, sucks but if you ask you definitely shall receive i think right now i think i think now's your time to hit a lot of big bands up and probably going yeah why the hell not why not who cares <laughs> exactly you know and this is what people need right now too is just the Something to take their minds off of, you know, whatever is going on in the world. Just kind of, oh, yeah. kind of relax a little bit, and you know, hey, just listen to something different. <laughs> gave me something fun to do and ramble about for a couple hours, so I'm, I'm happy. <laughs> Hell yeah, dude! Well, fucking thank you again. Um, if you would love to do it again for the new album, I would absolutely love to have you back. It would be great. Definitely. Uh, I'll, I'll make sure to link all the, uh, the Cryptodira links in the. Uh, in the description so people can find you guys pretty easy sick buddy thanks for having me and yeah definitely down do it again anytime awesome man well appreciate it keep in touch for sure
All right, dude. Stay healthy out there. Right, Enjoy your day, man. All right, you too, bud. There you have it, folks. I want to thank Scott again for coming on the show and you know taking the time to discuss this album, to give some insight on it. I really enjoyed it. I hope you do too. If you haven't heard the album, I recommend doing so right now. Drop whatever you're doing and go jam The Devil's Despair as loud as possible. Just do it. We'll be back next week with another special episode, so make sure to follow us on all the social media outlets on Facebook. Just search Cover Your Tracks on Instagram, Cover Your Tracks Pod. On Twitter, it is Cover Tracks Pod. Just uh, be sure to keep in touch, and uh, I guess we'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody.